You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Al Mola. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Professor Albert Mola is a theologian and one of America's foremost public intellectuals. His daily podcasts analysing culture from a biblical perspective are listened to all around the world. They have a huge following. Surely not many are doing more to get people right around the globe to understand the world from a deeper theological and philosophical worldview perspective. He's a prolific writer. His latest book is The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture and the Church. He is president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So, Dr. Moller, it's great to be with you. I really appreciate your time. It's a real honor to be with you. And I'm glad this isn't our first conversation. And uh, no, I look forward to where this will lead us. <laughs> well, uh, it's great to see you again in, uh, in, a, in a study packed with what looked like interesting books. Often our viewers will say, can't you focus in on those books? We want to see what your guest is reading. But I, <laughs> I think you read a lot. Probably a file. I understand that entirely. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as I've said, you are an avid student of and commentator on culture and current events. The world's eyes are on America at the moment. To begin with, can I ask you, what are the key things that you are paying attention to in your country's fever pitch journey towards the presidential election? Well, you know, as we're thinking about an election in a, in a society of ordered liberty, an election is a, an X-ray, a diagnostic test uh, of the people, of the electorate. And uh, so we're about to find out uh, how Americans think and, uh, in one sense, whether they're thinking uh, as we come to the November 3rd election. But huge issues are on the line. For, for us, uh, basically, every branch of government is now on the line uh, in our constitutional system. And that's been underlined for us as if we needed any reminder with a vacancy on the Supreme Court and the presidential nomination uh, to the nation's highest court, reminding us of the role of the president, uh, amongst other things, in making that kind of nomination. And so issues of life and death, of truth and, 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 and whether or not we can know what's true, of the meaning of text, and uh, whether we're bound together as a covenant nation by a, a constitutional agreement, or whether we are just a part of a giant progressivist experiment that is now without controls. Uh, the stakes are really that high. And, uh, and so we're about to find out whether we believe in ordered liberty and the prerequisites to ordered liberty, or uh, whether we're just going to, um, to give ourselves over to a revolution. And uh, unfortunately, we know how most of those end. Well, that's a clear perspective on the issues at stake. Can I ask about the deep polarisation in American society today? We see it in every Western nation. You saw it in Britain with Brexit. Uh, we see it in Australia, perhaps not to the same extent, but it's certainly there. But I think uh, even avid admirers of uh, America, uh, and I'm one of them, are staggered at the level of division in America. And we wonder whether there's any chance of healing, no matter what happens on November 4, some sort of recognition again of the need to end the atomization and start to find some ways back to talking to one another. 
Well, that's going to be very necessary, but I think the polarization is something that uh, that does require some explanation. If if you look at American society, and I, I recognize there are parallels in Australia and uh, especially in the UK, um, as you look at the 20th century, there was an enormous unity that was created by the emergence of these uh, democracies, I'll use that term in general, into the 20th century when uh, there was this enormous transformation of political systems. I mean, within a period of about 20 years, most of the monarchies, certainly the absolute monarchies of, uh, of, of Europe had, uh, had fallen. And uh, in the United States, there was this sense of vast national purpose and leadership in the world. But then we had common enemies uh, in two horrifying world wars and then in a long cold war. And so, you know, there was a major... Uh, fringe figure in American politics in the 1960s. He used to say there isn't a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. And he wasn't wrong. Uh, I often will show the platforms of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party from 1960 to students, and uh, I'll, I'll you know, white out the names of the parties. Tell me which is which. It's a, You have to be a real insider to know which is which. But by the time you get to the late years of the 20th century, and now in the 21st century, You've got two different logics working uh, out. You've got two different trajectories, two different visions of America, two different visions of the good life, uh, two different understandings of reality. And they're now encapsulated in these two political parties as two arguments. And every passing election, the division grows greater. So uh, you raise the right issue uh, you know, about the future. And every one of us is very concerned about that. But at the very least, an election like this is clarifying because it tells us this is how far apart Americans are. And it's issues of life, issues of gender, issues of sexuality. But it's, it's even more fundamental, just issues of reality and uh, what the good life is, what, uh, what human purpose is, what human beings are worth. Uh, all this is very much now on the line. Yeah, well, it, it seems common to the West, so you know, it's trite to say it, but it's almost as though amongst the many enemies that the West now faces, the most powerful are, in fact, internal. Um, I, I think we can see in retrospect that a lot of this was visible in the 20th century, but the, the, uh, the boundaries of the politically possible during the 20th century were largely conscribed by uh, such realities as the Cold War and the threat of uh, the Soviet Union. And, uh, and uh, once that was removed, uh, it's as if the lid is off and everything can boil now. Yeah. Well, to come to a quote from The Gathering Storm, uh, you said that our age is the outcome of years of secularization. Now, that's a word that is not well understood. Uh, Ambiguity in language seems to be the postmodernist's yeah. best friend. Uh, so, firstly, I think it'd be. I'd love to hear what you think secularization is, and what it's done to the influence of religion in society. And then, secondly, you know, has secularization seen religion decline, or is it more accurate to say that Christianity is being replaced by other religions and worldviews? But, but firstly, what what do you see as secularization, and its uh, and what it's done to the influence of traditional beliefs? That's a great question, and I want to be careful with words, as uh, as you also respect <laughs> words. And so, in uh, in a recent book project I just finished uh, the manuscript uh, uh, days ago, I I argue that 
the best way to understand secularization is the culture's loss of the binding authority of theism. So it's not as if everything you might define as religious disappears. It's not as if Christians are thrown into jail and Orthodox Jews and Muslims. It's that the society itself recognizes no binding authority of theism. And uh, as you well know, our entire civilizational project has been based on the assumption of theism, and, and not just some kind of vague theism, but uh, historically uh, upon uh, biblical theism, upon Christianity. And, uh, you know, I uh, in, in the, the book you cite there, uh, my most recent published work, uh, The Gathering Storm, I talk about the uh, the fact that we are now living on borrowed capital. Uh, so we what we've discovered is that for the last two or three hundred years, Western culture has been kind of resting on a melting iceberg, but it's been a long melt. And we're living on the borrowed capital of an inherited Christianity that's now denied. So what we're seeing is the inevitable result in a secular age of the fact that people really don't believe there's anything beyond what they see. They're, they're increasingly just materialists and naturalists. And, uh, and so um, there's no transcendent norm. There, there's no binding authority. So, uh, you know, John, if I, if I may say this, it, it comes down to whether or not marriage is something that is a given, for example, or if it's just a, a human artif artifact that we can, you know, change or transform in any way we like. If, if marriage is something we receive, then we've got to deal with it one way. And that's kind of the symbol of secularism. Nothing anymore is a given. Nothing is nothing is boundaried, nothing is objectively established, and we have to just receive it. Uh, everything's there for us to deal with without any worry about what a creator may have intended. It seems to me we've gone from a situation where, as secularism advanced, that melting iceberg as you talked about it, the cat's cry became tolerance, and you ought to respect other people's view of truth as truth if that was true for them, if I had a different set of ideas, then that was true for me. We've moved beyond that. We now have an extraordinary return of authoritarianism, even of absolutism, and I think particularly of the, the critical theorists and the way in which they reject not only religion, but also the great ideologies, including Marxism, it seems, even yeah. though they're probably an offshoot of cultural Marxism, they reject reason, they reject science, they reject the Enlightenment, they reject everything and say we can build a new um, trend, a, a new world order based on issues of sexuality, the sexualization of politics. How on earth can people see that as an adequate substitute for what we've given up? Well, no one really consistently does, do they? So it reminds me of Richard Dawkins, the atheist, who said no one is a postmodernist at 33,000 feet. Uh, <laughs> You know, in other words, you, you deny objective reality in your college classroom, you reject it in your, your legal courtroom, you reject it in your, in your protest on the street, but you're really counting on the fact that there are objective truths when you get on an airplane and it takes off, uh, you know, into the sky. Uh, you know, I used to put it this way. Um, the biggest problem of, a, you know, uh, anyone who wants to correct an academic context is that you meet postmodernists who tell you that all language is indeterminate and there is no objective truth and the, the, the author of the text is dead. So it's pure subjectivity. And thus you can't tell them what any text means 
but they don't apply it to their contract, now all of a sudden the rules have changed. So, you know, no one really wants a postmodern or a critical theory committed heart surgeon. And, uh, and so what that points out is that there's a basic contradiction, a lack of consistency. And uh, we've got to lean into that. We've got to show that, you know, again, you have people saying that, and, and by the way, the, the critical theorists um, really following Marx's project of just ruthless criticism, as he called for, that is the destruction of everything. And he said, you know, once that happens, nothing will remain. No God, no morality, no, no family even, he said. Uh, once you set that loose, uh, there's no going back, but you can't, you can't let it control everything because eventually even the, you know, even the postmodernists have to add two apples plus two apples and come up with four apples. So we, we, we've got some arguments uh, that we've got to be making very clearly. And a part of what we have to do right now is show that if there is no objective truth, then we don't even know there's no objective truth. Yeah. Well, I understand the irony. I think COVID-19 has seen us sort of, uh, you know, it quickly reveals that actually we do want to know everything we possibly can about this disease. What does it mean? Is it going to kill me? Uh, what are the medical realities? Uh, and it also shows that we're very ill-equipped now to cope with our uh, notions of our own mortality to the point where I don't think we have been rational about the costs involved in the way in which we've managed it. Uh, of course, there's a lot of controversy in America about how it's been handled there. But in this country where it's been well handled, there's been a terrible lack of focus on the mental health costs and the economic costs. One of the realities that doesn't seem to worry the modern progressives at all is that Western nations are effectively financially bankrupting, bankrupting themselves because there's no logic in the argument anymore. There's no capacity to mount a serious intellectual case and to have it heard and have it debated about the consequences of living for now, yes. day by day, with no view to the future. But you know, that, that's a very important issue uh, to say a biblical worldview and a worldview that makes civilization possible. So you just spoke as if we have some obligation to those not yet born and some obligation to those long dead, some continuity. So even in matters of economics, I mean, if, 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 we don't, if, if we're not concerned for future generations, then we can just borrow insanely. But the moment we concede the fact that we owe something to anyone, uh, uh, present, past, or future, then we have to reframe all of this. And so what we're seeing right now in the West is that most governments have just decided to spend and borrow at insane levels as if no one in future generations is going to have to pay for this and uh, as if we're not responsible to those generations. Now, sadly, in the United States, uh, this is now something of a bipartisan project, and uh, this, 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 too, will be disastrous. Yeah. Uh, coming to this issue of... Um constitutional uh, conservatives and their concern. As an Australian looking on and reading our media, one of the things that's often commented on but not understood is why people of evangelical persuasion often back Trump when he's seen to be, you know, uncouth and, and crude and married many times and what have you. Uh, and, and people don't get in this country why 
the issue of the courts and who is on them are so important. We have a different system. Uh, our High Court is quietly chosen by the Cabinet of the day. It's not subject to public hearing uh, and they haven't been as adventurous as some have tried uh, in, in, in developing legislation. Some of them in Australia, for example, have tried to develop a de facto Bill of Rights. But generally speaking, they stuck to their task, which is interpreting yes. the Constitution and the laws of the land. It's very different in America. And it would be useful. I'd really like to hear your views uh, on yeah. um, the, the role of the Supreme Court in America as an influencer on American culture and and whether you think their worldviews or the worldviews of the members of the High Court have helped change America much in over the last 50 or 60 years. Well, you know, one sign of the transformation of the Supreme Court is that if you were to go back and ask the average American 50 years ago to name a justice of the Supreme Court, they'd be unlikely to be able to do so. But now, you know, you've got farmers in Kansas and uh, protesters in Portland who know the names of all of the justices of the Supreme Court. That's not how it was intended. But, you know, uh, there are uh, there are several valid uh, democratic or, or ordered liberty arguments. One of them is a parliamentary system such as you have. Uh, and uh, the other is the, the constitutional system of divided government as, as we have a federal system. And, uh, you know, the, the fact is that parliamentary systems are more efficient simply because if you have a majority in the government, you can pretty much get whatever the whatever the populace elects as the majority of the government. It can, it can happen and, and rather efficiently. Uh, our system of government was based upon slowing the passions of people down rather than accelerating them. And so as you look at the at the, the division of powers between the legislature and the executive and the judicial in the United States, the, the least progressive of all, so to speak, was to be the nation's highest court. It was to be the ultimate check on any unconstitutional actions that might be undertaken by the legislature or, or by the executive, by the president. And then it, of course, has just an enormous procedural responsibility in interpreting the laws and uh, huge questions that, that arise in any civilization. So throughout most of American history, the, uh, the Supreme Court functioned largely in the background of the nation's consciousness. But all that changed in the midpoint of the 20th century when uh, a progressivist revolution in politics eventually came to the courts and where you had a succession of progressivist presidents. Uh, and, and, and frankly, you had a change in the culture of law where you had an entire new generation of activists uh, who saw the law and the courts as the way to achieve what they couldn't get legislatively. See, that's a huge issue. You take the issue of abortion. Uh, Congress at any point could legislate the issue of abortion, could either determine that uh, abortion is legal or illegal. It doesn't have the political nerve to do so. And, uh, and furthermore, the fact that our members of Congress are elected by districts, they're answerable to those districts. So, and the senators are electable to their states and the president has to run for election. And so it turns out that the courts would be far more efficient as engines of social revolution. And so those who are trying to achieve that revolution turn to the courts because they could never have gotten, say, a Roe law through, but they got a majority on the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, 1973, Congress 
could never have politically legislated the legalization of same-sex marriage. And uh, you might say that's inefficient, but I think that's our constitutional order at work. It slows down bad ideas. But they said, well, the court we can use to just escape that limitation. And so I hope that's making sense. But they, it was turning the courts into the engines of a progressive ideology. They were too impatient to wait for Congress and the president to act on these matters. Does this uh, feed directly into the idea that's, I think, clearly emerging, that today's, for want of a better term, technocrats, the people who have the megaphones and, the, to a large extent, the influence and their hands on the levers of power, essentially don't really believe in the democracy. You can't, in democracy, you can't trust the people to get it right. We know better than they do. Absolutely. And, you know, there have always been elites. Uh, there's an elite in every society. And, and as Burke, uh, Edmund Burke recognized, there's a there's a hierarchy in every society, whether it's honest or noble or not. Of course, we want an honest and noble hierarchy. Uh, and uh, that, that's been transformed into the idea of meritocracy in, in, in modern uh, societies of liberty. But, you know, that requires the people to be involved. And again, that's very inefficient. If you're a social engineer, and a technocrat, and a member of the intellectual elite, and you know better. So you've got to find a way to go around the people. Because even, even like you take any number of issues in the United States, you take the technocrats, and I like the fact you use that term, uh, they see uh, a nation as nothing more than a like a high-tech corporation. They make decisions on an instant. It's, uh, it's, it's an entirely top-down you know, uh, uh, a form of, uh, of management. And uh, why can't you do that in a society? Uh, And so what you see is that the left has been incredibly frustrated with the fact that uh, they're not going to get their aims by democratic means. And so, yes, they're very frustrated with people. And so there's a there was a book written decades ago in the United States. What's the matter with Kansas? And it was written by someone from the left asking, why do these people in Kansas vote against their self-interest? But of course, people in Kansas weren't voting against their self-interest. They just didn't have the self-interest goals, the vision of life that the uh, the intellectual elites thought they should have. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've been to Kansas quite a few times because uh, of my yes. rural interests, and it's right in the heartland of uh, of America. And I often wonder why the heartland of America somehow allows or seems impotent to change things. And yet, I almost speak against myself, surely that's what Trump was about. If I can put it this way, some people would say Trump is the problem. But it wouldn't be more accurate to say to see that he was the result of the problem, that this disregard for the views of the mainstream by those elites, those technocrats, those others who think they know best, for us as well as for themselves, produced an enormous backlash, which really was a revolution in the Republican Party as much as it was in American society at large. Right. So you have these uh, you have these two parties, and they basically played the same political game uh, for most of the 20th century, and then they began to play very contrary uh, playbooks. And uh, yet, if you look at the Republican Party. And, or you look at conservatism, uh, conservatives in the United States, as in many other Western nations, basically have seen themselves playing a losing game of defense for a matter of decades. Trump came in and on the scene and said, I'm not playing by the old Republican playbook. I don't want 
to lose more slowly. I want to break up. I want to change the rules of the game. And uh, there were enough Americans. Uh, and by the way, it was the Electoral College where Trump won. And so to make your point, it was Kansas who affected that change. It didn't come from San Francisco. And uh, the Electoral College and the United States Senate are, uh, are two of the ways in the United States of making sure that Kansas still matters. And, uh, and so you look at the, at the electoral map from 2016 when Trump was elected, and it was the very people who said, I just don't even trust that the old Republican playbook, still too cosmopolitan, still too concerned with playing defense, still too much concerned with uh, reaching consensus. I, I don't agree with that anymore. Now, in 2020, uh, there's a mixed record of, uh, of what it means to have someone who plays by a completely different playbook. But at the same time, the left has not only doubled down on its playbook, uh, it's moving in even more radical directions. So we're looking at the stakes being even higher in 2020 than they were in 2016. Yeah, extraordinary that there's been no real concession to that pent up frustration and desire to meet people and to address their concerns. Technocrats still know best, if I can put it that way, and nothing will change their views. There's an extraordinary arrogance about it. It's one of the marks, I think, of, of Western culture. We've lost what used to be a very big thing in Australia. It was huge. My father drummed it into me all the time. Show a sense of proportion. Don't be, as he might have put it, on yourself. Listen to yes. the other person. That's dead. We neither listen nor forgive and, 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 and apparently can't forget either. So... It's very hard well, to build relationship. Yeah. Look at the condescension that's been coming from the left for decades. And it also yeah. explains some of their frustration. So their condescension, you know, 40 years ago was we're right, they're wrong, and eventually they will come to be illuminated and agree we're right. Well, of course, that just didn't happen. Uh, and so now it's, uh, you think of the language used by Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, you know, now those conservatives are deplorables, you know, are uh, unworthy. And, and so what you see is that on the left, um, th there's a very anti-democratic sense. Uh, it really doesn't matter what people in Kansas and Ohio and Indiana think. Uh, what the people in San Francisco and New York think is simply going to happen. Deal with it. Yeah. It's a trend line we're seeing everywhere. It's not just America, but with all eyes on America at the moment, we're very, very aware of it. Now, you use the word, uh, you know, people will come to understand they'll be illuminated. Uh, that's the idea, I guess you'd say, of a great awakening. You're awakened yes. to how, in reality, we're all terrible racists and the problem is white supremacy. The Black Lives Matter movement seems to be pretty obviously guided by what we're now calling critical race theory. You recently described critical race theory, I think I have this right, as, as claiming, they claim, this entire society, and that includes you know, countries like mine, I think you'd say, and culture is rotten at the base and at bottom. It's white supremacy and racism, and this claim is basically a form of Marxist analysis. So it seems to me that one of the striking things about this is the way in which this has taken off has become so pervasive, this critical race theory has really zoomed out of the universities and what you might have called a few nutcases setting up stalls on orientation day. I don't know whether you call that in America. All of a sudden, though, it's absolutely everywhere. It's, it's, it's drenched Hollywood. 
uh, and it sparked a movement which seems more dedicated to the idea of introducing new hatreds than resolving old hatreds. None of us in a civilised world would defend the idea of one race being superior to the other anymore at an intellectual or a moral level. At least I'd like to think that's the case. But you now see that being thrown aside. What you're really seeing is hate being addressed by another form of hatred or claimed hatred being addressed by another form of hatred as though that isn't going to make the problem worse. This critical race theory, how do we recognise it when it shows up nearly everywhere and sometimes we're wondering where it came from? Well, as you know, it, uh, it emerged like critical theory, of which it's a part, out of uh, frustration in the failure of Marxism more than anything else. And, and look, they, they thought the Marxists were, were sure uh, no, none more so than Lenin and Marx, that uh, something like the Bolshevik Revolution would happen throughout the West, and in particular, and would would eventually become a world-dominating, uh, world-embracing, you know, revolution. And uh, you know, if you if you actually read Marx's documents or Marx and Engels together, they believed that it was most likely to happen in London, which was the modern. Uh, industrialized, uh, that is the UK, the most industrialized nation, and uh, where you had, uh, you know, owners and workers with this giant advance in capitalism. So they were sure it was going to happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. There was no Bolshevik revolution in, in London. There was no Bolshevik revolution in France that had any political effect, and certainly not in the United States. And so the uh, into the academy with the Marxists, into the universities, into the colleges, and and into the thought class, and there, critical theory emerged as a way of saying, okay, we're not going to bring about the revolution that we want and demand by economic means. It's not going to come by military force. It's going to come by you know what's been called the long march through the institutions. We'll take over the courts. We will we will take over entertainment. We will take over uh, news and and uh, and journalism. We will take over the professions. Uh, we will take over uh, basically the political process. And, and so that has been going on. But, you know, John, one of the most interesting things is, uh, is, is what happened at the New York Times. And I'm sure you're aware of this. Yes. When you, you had the editorial page editor uh, basically toppled. And he was a liberal. I mean, a genuine liberal. But he was toppled by a far more radical uh, staff that basically he had hired. And, and that's what's happened, is that the universities have been turning out uh, these folks, uh, students who have been committed to this very leftist ideology, and people have been hiring them. I, I think uh, Barry Weiss, who was at the New York Times, got it exactly right. You had older liberals who thought they were hiring other liberals. They didn't realize they were hiring radicals who aren't going to allow liberalism. Not only do they see you know, people in, who voting for Trump as deplorables, they, they see the old liberals, even the ones who as part of the old system. And so critical race theory, by the way, just to, just to say this, it shows up because like all of Marxism, it has to have an original sin. And the original sin is white supremacy and racism. Now, you and I are agreed absolutely as Christians that any form of racial superiority, as you said, is not only ontologically wrong, it's morally horrifying. And the same thing is true for any racism. We know that racism is a sin. But when you reduce everything in original sin to white racial superiority, then that's what's behind everything. 
And so it doesn't matter. You disagree over abortion, you disagree over economics, you disagree over, you know, prison policy, then it's just a disguised form of, of uh, white racial supremacy. And, and, you know, that becomes the great conversation stopper. And, and that's why, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is so radical that it is like, uh, it's like Daniel Dennett's idea of a universal acid. You know, eventually it dissolves everything and it eventually will dissolve itself. But what's going to be left is, is rather horrifying. Yeah, it is concerning. Um, and it, it, it allows no room for sort of argument and discussion. I was struck by something I read recently that I was unaware of. After Great Britain finally declared that not only was the slave trade to be stopped, but slavery itself was to be stopped in about 1833 or 1834, uh, Britain as the superpower of the day, sorry, Americans, but they were at that stage, <laughs> um, resolved that they would seek to influence this outwardly in the rest of the world and end slavery more broadly, because I think it's probably true to say that every single race ever has at some stage kept slaves, traded slaves and kept slaves. But whether that is the term or not, some form of oppression mm -hmm. is a part of every civilizational heritage. But, he, but here's an interesting little footnote to history that the sort of thing that we ought to be aware of, when the Britons decided, not only would they end slavery, they'd try and free slaves in the rest of the world, 17,000 whites in the Royal Navy lost their lives, lost their lives setting out to, uh, uh, you know, um, intercept uh, slave trading from other countries, yeah. pulling up ships and freeing slaves and what have you. Were they racist too? Well, if you buy into the idea that the entire civilization is a giant complicity in racial superiority, then even when they may have been acting nobly in an individual action, they're part of a system that is hopelessly corrupt and must be undone. So that's why a William, uh, an agent of the, uh, of the larger project of white supremacy uh, in their rendering. Uh, and again, look, you know, they, that's why the Democratic Party in the United States in embracing Black Lives Matter has embraced a movement that eventually will render every single one of them a racist. Uh, because any, any disagreement, if it, it, it's one thing if you say any disagreement with the right is just over what's basically white supremacy. But if that's the only foundational issue you have, then eventually it, it goes back to the, and I'm sure you're very aware of this, you know, the Trotskyist uh, strain in, uh, in Marxist theory. You know, if it, you, no one, in other words, every, if you have the slightest disagreement over Marxist theory, well, now yeah. you're one of the deplorables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on this issue of race, and you made the point, you know, it's a morally abhorrent idea that I should think of myself as superior to somebody else on the basis of the colour of my skin. Uh, but but let's let's swing it to the positive. I mean, none of us... I mean, I think generally speaking, it's an area where we've made some progress. There's a wider acceptance amongst middle Australians, I think, than there might have been 50 years ago that racism's terrible. And yet now we're being told we're more racist than ever when I think we're, we've tried very hard to be less racist. We're not given any right. marks for progress. What would you say is your theological or biblical perspective on how best to tackle yeah. racism? It does exist. Well, it can be conscious, you know, uh, it can be unconscious, as they say. All of those things are true. Uh, it is abhorrent. 
but we'll never resolve it with the Black Lives Matter formula. We've established that. That's your view, and it's certainly my view. Um, what is the better way? Well, I think it's not only better, I think it's the only way. And that's why uh, in the very book you mentioned, uh, The Gathering Storm, I say, if we lose any transcendent understanding of human nature and human dignity, then there's no rescue. Uh, so wh wh why do we believe human beings have rights? Why in the Western tradition do we believe in human dignity? Uh, it's because of the inheritance of Christianity. I mean, the Declaration of Independence says, you know, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's not just decorative language. That was the intellectual furniture. E even those, by the way, who were deists were, as you might say, Christian deists. In other words, it was it was it was the Christian morality based upon divine authority that they still held to. And uh, and the only rescue is seeing every single human being, every single human being at every point of development and under every condition as fully made in the image of God. And uh, if you don't believe that, we're gonna act as each other human dignity. And then that's the real problem here. I don't think there is any recovery if it's going to be entirely on the terms of modern theory. I don't I don't think modern theory can carry the freight. I, I don't think it can deliver on human dignity and uh, and any kind of sustainable human rights. You know, in in our country, our secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, established a commission on unalienable rights, basically to ask the question, where do these rights come from? And, uh, you know, the left attacked it savagely. But that was exactly the right question. You know, what what are human rights? Uh, where do they come from? And, uh, you know, that's a question you would think liberals and conservatives in any classical system would say, well, that's exactly the right question. We need to spend some time trying to figure that out. But now the left says you can't even ask the question. It's all about power. And, and you know, that, that's why we come back to Marx again and again. Uh, I actually think behind all of this is Marx where and 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 then, of course, seen in Nietzsche. Uh, where it's just about power. So it doesn't really matter what the argument is. If this argument runs its course, they'll come up with another argument. But what they're demanding is power. Yeah, which is very ugly. It comes back to pride, doesn't it? Only a proud person, only a person without capacity for self-reflection and the ability to look at others and walk and think through what they're going through and show some empathy for them could believe that power is a desirable objective in itself. And yet, our culture has become saturated with a desire for power. And every modern movement seems to begin with the words, um, we need to empower such and such a group or my group or that group or somebody else. But if you're not a theist, then you're some kind of power worshiper. And this was true in the ancient world. Just look at Baal, uh, Zeus, uh, you know, Jupiter and Mars. I mean, you're just left with... Uh, with gods of power. And uh, our folks are far too sophisticated to uh, carve an idol, but theory is actually their idol. You know, the politics is, 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 the, is the ritual, it's the liturgy. And uh, that we're just in a very, very sad state at this point because there's no worshiper more ardent than the worshiper of power. Yeah, that's chilling in itself when you reflect on what it's done to us down through history. But of course, we don't respect history anymore. Can I come to, uh, you, you touched on the issue of uh, the importance of recognising the value of every life. 
that of course is um, something that uh, uh, people who are pro-life argue in relation to abortion. Now it's become an issue, a major issue again, in your country in the build-up to the next election. Uh, the current president has talked more about abortion than any other president in the last 50 years. In countries like mine, uh, in New Zealand, uh, in the UK, probably Canada, abortions not really remained one of the hot topics of the culture wars in the way that it has in America. What, uh, why do you think that might be? And how, how do you see the abortion debate in your country? Uh, is it, and, and is it just the religious who are pro-life who are maintaining this battle? For the most part, yes. Uh, for the most part, any consistent pro-life argument is coming from a theological argument. It's uh, it's coming from some form of theism. That's why, again, going back, I've kind of shortened my definition of secularization to the loss of the binding authority of theism. It has to be because human life is a gift. And, you know, a gift requires person, creator. And thus, it's it shouldn't be a surprise that uh, that you've got a different definition of life where you start with theism. You know, the bizarre thing is that uh, in the social revolutions of the 60s, the the left thought it had the clincher argument and they thought they won. I mean, even in the Supreme Court document here in 1973, Roe v. Wade, the majority opinion states this should settle the issue. Well, good luck with that. And I think it's because uh, there, there's a, a sociological distinction between opaque categories and uh, and transparent categories. And so, you know, you can get into an argument over, uh, say, taxation policy, and the average American's eyeballs are going to eventually glaze over. Uh, but you talk about killing babies in the womb. Well, that's a, that's a transparent issue. And that's why the left has just met this immovable wall. And, and by the way, it, it, it doesn't mean that the majority of Americans necessarily even demand the reversal of Roe v. Wade. That's but the fact is that there are millions and millions of Americans, and, and, and I believe clearly a majority of Americans, who believe that it's not just a matter of accidental biomass in the womb. And at least, you know, I hold on to that as a vestigial hope of sanity in the middle of you know, rampant insanity. Uh, but it will lose that in a generation if we don't make some recovery of sanity. Uh, because that, And that's the big issue. That's why the left, by the way, is so uh, urgent. It is because it is a, it's a youth movement in so many ways. And... Uh, the uh, the voting patterns in the United States would indicate, and by the way, the church going patterns, that uh, the passing of the generation now in their 50s, 60s, and 70s will uh, lead to a completely different nation in a way that's not been true in American history ever before. Can you just elaborate a little on what you think that might look like? Yeah, I, I think I can in the sense that uh, you're just you're going to see the fact that that uh, the old patterns broken. So the the old the old uh, succession pattern was always that uh, you had young people who were more liberal than their parents, but the moment they became parents, uh, they became quite conservative. And even in church going, and this was true in the UK uh, as well. You've got great sociological research, historical research there that uh, you had people who drifted away from 
uh, religious observance. And yet, uh, I'll just put it in that neutral term. And then as they got children and got property, so, you know, it used to be that once you get your 401k over here, you get your retirement plan, then all of a sudden now you got money to worry about. Uh, if you own real estate, then all of a sudden you've got to worry about uh, the, the worth and the, and, the, and the preservation of that, which you've earned by your labor or received as a patrimony. And, uh, but that's broken. And it's broken because you mentioned this, the technocrats, the knowledge economy has broken all of that. It's not that the further we get, economy, the further we get from the reality of agrarian life, the more liberal and postmodern uh, the society becomes. When, when you look at the, the fact that in the United States, it's, uh, it's the coast. Uh, it's not the heartland of the country. It's the coast. And, it, and if it is in the heartland of the country, it's in a little blue dot, which is where the state university is, <laughs> uh, because the knowledge workers are just like those on the coast. And uh, so we're in a situation in which uh, these uh, technocrats, uh, the way you, you, I like the term you use, the, uh, the, the, uh, those folks we might call the uh, denizens and the dictators of Silicon Valley, they're basically running an alternative government, an alternative uh, political and so to that that was built in the name of representative democracy over the course of the 20th century. So the people who built that culture, the greatest generation, as they're called here, of World War II, and, uh, and then even, as we would call them, the baby boomers, uh, and, um, and maybe even the next generation, when they pass from the scene, there are going to be fewer people who even have an idea what this, uh, this democratic experiment was all about and what made it possible. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. That leads me into a couple of questions. One around the importance of this election. Yeah. Perhaps it is the most important election in America for a very long time and indeed for the world. I'm sure there are a lot of other countries, not just yes. other democracies, watching very closely to see what happens in America. Um, you know, it, one of the things that worries me a little is that sometimes people on the conservative side can be pretty rude and dismissive and not seek to heal. And I don't want to sound condescending about an Australian talking about America, but I sometimes feel that uh, President Trump has missed the opportunity to build bridges, which might have helped him a great deal. And then there are the issues we touched on earlier about his personal life and what have you. And yet I think you're painting a picture that, that he and the Republicans' commitment to, for example, a conservative approach to interpreting the Constitution and allowing democracy to run its inefficient course, those sorts of reasons are justifications for people who think private morality works uh, and that we ought to be generously spirited towards others and so forth should put aside their concerns in relation to President Trump's personal attributes there and opt for the policies that he represents and is likely to take forward. Have I got that right? Well, you certainly don't have it wrong, let me put it that way. Um, the, uh, the role of president Trump this is the, uh, the great disturber, the, the breaker of equilibrium, the uh, destroyer of norms. And, uh, one of the problems with president Trump is that he doesn't seem to understand that the United States government is not an extended reality television show, which is won by ratings. Uh, and, and what, what, what gains an audience in reality television 
is a, a bluster and a recklessness that doesn't, uh, doesn't add up to lasting cultural change. And I think the big question is not American conservatism can, uh, can recover the, the understanding of how it is to bring about lasting cultural change. Now, again, I'm not an apologist for the uh, cosmopolitan uh, elite of the uh, Republican Party that was in many ways in control for far too long. But, but I am a classical Augustinian Christian. I'm a classical Burkean conservative. And that means that I do not believe that conservative uh, policies can long survive without conservative virtues. And uh, so we've got to recover conservative virtues or the conservative policies will not last. I understand. To go back then uh, to what we were talking about a moment before that, this sort of drift away from our moorings that's so extensive that people will not understand their cultural past, let alone the Christian origins of the American Constitution, the American experiment. It creates the very real danger, I think, that Christians will be marginalised to the point where, um, for example, um, uh, certain... Um, uh, preaching might be outlawed on the basis that, uh, well, the Bible may say it, but uh, it's offensive uh, and is no longer legal. It, it'll raise the question, a very broad question, of, of, of how on earth people of faith, what an irony, you know, in a culture that in many ways they were responsible for helping to build, uh, are no longer welcome in that culture, marginalised and even shut down, and we'll have to think through the issues of civil obedience again. This is a fairly frightening prospect as I look on it, to be quite honest. I don't think it's going to be very easy in the future at all. And it's not as if we have the option of um, the pilgrims of, uh, of looking for a new world. Somehow or other, we're going to have to exist in our own societies. Uh, at the same time as we weep for our own lost freedoms, uh, we weep for the lostness and the brokenness that seems to be descending upon us. Um, the thing that I often throw up to progressives is if your new worldview is so absolutely marvellous, why have we got absolutely unheralded levels of anxiety and depression and self-harm amongst our young people and such astonishing levels of, of breakdown of trust in our own institutions as grown-up people? Yeah. May I offer a footnote answer on that at first? Because this is something I have to deal with every day. Uh, so let's just take, uh, let's just say uh, the transgender revolution for a moment. And so, as you point out, it has not brought about widespread happiness. No. It, uh, by the even reporting of the activists in the movement, uh, it has brought about horrifying levels of suicide and the rest. So the question is why? And their answer is because opposition, moral opposition to this revolution is the real cause of all of that harm. And, and, and then you see that immediately answer. If you don't join the revolution, then you are harming human yeah. with a message that uh, undermines their declaration of human autonomy and uh, this new morality of harm. And thus you get the categories of hate speech. Now, do we believe speech can be hateful? Yes. Would that be wrong? Uh, Violating God's law, unchristian, yes. But telling someone that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that he made us in his image, male and female created he them, that's not being designated as hate speech. Uh, as you know, in some English-speaking countries, 
There have been people who've been facing criminal charges merely for holding up a sign with a Bible verse. And, and you know, part of this is, is really anger. And uh, the anger is directed at Orthodox believers. I'll use that little o, Orthodox believers in any theistic faith, because we are the deplorables. And, uh, you know, we have no right. And so Frank Bruni, a columnist with the New York Times, uh, openly homosexual, uh, LGBTQ identified, uh, he actually wrote an exasperated article in which he said, you have the right to your religious beliefs so long as you keep them in your hearts, uh, you know, in your homes and in your pews, you know, as long as it has no public significance and we better not even hear about it. So religious liberty is now being redefined, you know, by, again, someone as influential as a major Sunday columnist every week for the New York Times as what we can hold in our hearts, what we can say in inside our churches, but it can't be relevant or heard beyond that without doing harm. And uh, that, that argument's spreading like a virus. No one who understood history could possibly argue that, uh, you mentioned Wilberforce, but think of all of the other people, uh, Lord Shaftesbury, um, your own Abraham Lincoln. What if they'd remained silent and kept their beliefs, the things that motivated them to do great things for other human beings to themselves? Where would the world be today? How could you possibly argue such a position if you had any understanding of history? And to now turn around and to say that it's not just that the views of uh, Bible-believing Christians are odd it's that or unusual, it's that they are hurtful and harmful. This is an astounding revolution, which is far further reaching, I think, than, than most people in the streets have even begun to appreciate, in my country at least. Well, even mentioning Abraham Lincoln points to the fact that most people vastly underestimate what we're facing because we're now facing demands to take down Abraham Lincoln statues. And it is because uh, the argument is he was basically still serving the cause of white supremacy. Again, if, you, if you're going to take the Black Lives Matter critical race theory argument, then Lincoln's willingness and determination to save the union at whatever cost just becomes a Marxist analysis of power. And uh, so, in other words, there are no heroes. And, and you mentioned something earlier that I want to come back to. Uh, when you hold to this critical theory and, and say Black Lives Matter narrative, you can never admit progress. And, you know, that's where the Christian understanding allows for both regress and progress in, in society. And uh, so they deny progress. There, there's no opportunity for progress. So the civil rights movement was an abject failure. I'd argue it wasn't a failure. As you, as you spoke about people in Australia, look, people in the United States are far less likely to tell a racist joke or to make an overtly racist judgment or to be offended uh, when they see an interracial couple uh, or family. And, and, and so, in other words, there's been vast moral improvement uh, and uh, but if you're a revolutionary, you can't admit progress. You have to say that those who look like the agents of progress are actually just disguised parts of the system. And so a Winston Churchill, an Abraham Lincoln, a Lord Shaftesbury, uh, those statues have to come down too. Well, you've um, packed unbelievable insights into this conversation. I'm deeply appreciative. Can we finish on a on a, on a different note, I think you'd have something to say about the founder of Christianity who's so offended and was seen as so hurtful 
and so damaging by the technocrats of his day and indeed the mob of his day, the fickle mob of his day, the sort of fickle mob that Alexander Hamilton, when he was influencing the framing of the American Constitution, was so worried about that the mob can be, turn itself into a frenzy. Uh, well, yes. look, look what they did to the founder of Christianity, and yet, and yet we haven't forgotten him, and I believe you would argue that he still offers uh, what we need to know about the way forward. Yes, because where we agree with the revolutionaries is that there is an underlying sin. And we believe that that is actually sin against a holy God and that the basic human problem that leads to everything from inequity and injustice uh, to racism and uh, the violation of human dignity uh, is actually sin against God and uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if sin is the problem, then there can be no there can be no rescue by politics or revolution. It can come only by. God intervening in human history through a savior to redeem sinful humanity from our sin. And uh, so, you know, all this conversation just makes me more committed to Christ, to the Christian gospel, a more committed Christian, and more committed to the fact that the only answer is, uh, is understanding that our basic rebellion is not against one another. Uh, it, it's against a holy God. And the enmity that shows up right now in political strife and polarization and racism in every other form uh, goes back to the fact that we are disobedient to a holy and righteous God, loving and merciful God who is our creator. So, yes, I appreciate the fact you allow me to end this conversation by pointing to the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom there is salvation. And I don't believe there is any other means of salvation. There is no other savior. There is no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. So, yes, uh, count me as an evangelist. You've been very generous with your time. I think our conversation reflects one thing that's important for us all to understand. We have to make choices. We're not going to be able to sit on the fence. To sit on the fence is to be absorbed by, uh, I think in the future will be to be absorbed by forces that are truly ugly and quite soul-destroying. We have to make choices. Thank you so much indeed for your time. And at a personal note, can I say I stand in awe of your learning and of the reality that you must spend an extraordinary amount of time simply reading and observing and listening. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been a, an example of what uh, can happen in a conversation. And I, I hope this kind of uh, conversation will spread elsewhere. You're very gracious. I'm thankful for you and very thankful for this conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.